So who's excited this morning? All right. Hey, I know it's only 8 a.m., but you've had your coffee, you've had, ladies, you had your kappa frappe thing. I don't know what's in it. Just nothing. You had nothing but caffeine, so you're good to go. You're full of energy. And uh, so this morning, uh, I just want to spend a couple of minutes, about two and a half hours, actually. Uh, I'll go a lot faster if you give me some amens, uh, a couple of hand claps in between. Yeah, there we go. All right, sermon's over. Go home, be blessed. Amen. No, uh, and so what I want you to do this morning is I want to talk to you uh, about hope. Hope. And so this is what I want you to do. I want you to look at the person next to you, and I want you to tell them, I want you to say, there's hope for you, and there's hope for me. There's hope for you, and there's hope for me. And so for all my note takers this morning, if you want a title, you can call it this, Hope in the Rubble. Hope in the Rubble. When I was writing this, I, me being the, um, the Disney movie expert that I am, I immediately thought of Aladdin with the diamond in the rough. Because in life, when there is things that don't go our way and there's things are falling apart, there may be chaos, destruction all around us, I want to reassure you, I want to encourage somebody this morning that even when things, nothing looks like it's going your way, everything looks like it's falling apart around you, that there is still hope for you this morning. If you have your Bibles, want to start off this morning in Second Chronicles chapter 34. And we're going to read a good portion of this chapter this morning. We're going to break it up a little bit. But it's a story most of you know. How many of you have ever heard of the boy king Josiah? Yes, no, maybe, kind of, sort of, in Sunday school that one time. Uh, in fact, there was one time back when I was just a young, a young boy, uh, our church had a, uh, like a hallelujah festival. We couldn't say Halloween uh, because, you know... <laughs> you know, satanic kind of stuff. So we didn't do this. We had a hallelujah festival. And so there was a costume contest. Now, obviously with a costume contest at a hallelujah festival, nothing scary, nothing crazy, nothing, none of that stuff. Can't be Dracula when the hallelujah festival at Church of God. Amen? Amen. Come on, people. Y'all know that. You're Pentecostal. So what I did was I dressed up. I was eight years old. So you know who I was? I was King Josiah. I had me a, uh, I had me like a robe and like a like a purple cape almost. I had me a gold crown. I looked like a good king, and I still lost. And I was mad that I lost. I thought I made a great Josiah, but the boy the boy King Josiah, eight years old, and he's put on the throne. And so here we go with verse one. It says this: Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem thirty one years. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. Now in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father David. 
In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of all high places, a share of poles and idols. Under his direction, the altars of the bells were torn down. He cut to pieces the incense altars that were above them, and he smashed the Asherah poles and the idols, and he broke to pieces and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on their altars, and so he purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, as far as Naphtali, and in the ruins around them, he tore down the altars and the Asherah poles and crushed the idols to powder and cut to pieces all the incense altars throughout Israel. Then he went back to Jerusalem in the 18th year of Josiah's reign to purify the land and the temple. He sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, Azaliah, and Messiah, the ruler of the city, with Joah, son of Joah, has the recorder to repair the temple of the Lord his God. We'll stop there. So Josiah is thrust into this world of crazy responsibility at a young age. Okay, Anybody have an 8-year-old? Anybody? Anybody have a 9-year-old, a 10-year-old? All right, could you imagine your child being president tomorrow? All the choices... All the decisions now run through him or her. They are the one now in charge of the land. A kind of a hard thing to fathom. And the reason is, is that at eight years old, nine years old, even 10 years old, a child doesn't really have the capacity, the maturity to make these kind of decisions. But Josiah is actually pretty fortunate in the story. He's surrounded by a good council. He has good advisors around him that are trying to help him lead this kingdom. And then it says here that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, that he followed the ways, the example of his father, David. Now, let me clarify, David is not actually his biological father. In fact, it's been some 300 years since David has died that Josiah comes along. But I imagine that King David, one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel, is still talked about to that day. In the same way that people in America talk about some of the great presidents. We talk about Abraham Lincoln as one of the greater presidents that ever, and, and Lincoln's been dead for, for, for years now. But we talk about these men and women that have done great things. So King David, he is just talked about. Because ever since Solomon, David's son, has died, it's been a mix of good kings and bad kings. And unfortunately, it's mostly been bad kings. And so they talk about King David. If we could just have King David again, if we could just have someone like King David. And I imagine Josiah hears this and decides, I'm going to be like King David. I am going to try to model my kingship and my kingdom after David. Now, we know who David was. David was a man after God's own heart. David would have been a great example for Josiah to follow. And so that's what he decides to do. Now, this may sound similar to how some of you are this morning. You have a father or a mother or a grandfather or a grandmother or somebody in your family who is a faithful servant of the Lord, and you admire that, and you, as, you aspire, you, you, you desire to, to be like them. You grew up as a child, and you were watching them. 
I've heard many pastors say that they grew up and down the hall they would hear their grandmother in her closet crying and praying to God and it inspired them to, to serve the Lord one day because of the prayers of a grandmother, because of the prayers of a mother or a father. And so Josiah has that same mentality. He says, I'm going to be like King David. So now as he begins, he gets up to the prime age of 16 in the eighth year of his reign. At 16, he's still going strong as king, and he says, now I need to start serving God. Up until this point, he's been leaning on his counsel. He's been leaning on his advisors. He's been leaning on maybe what King David used to do. But now he's saying, I need to know the God that David knew. I need to know. I've heard about this God. I've heard about this Lord. King David worshipped him. King David followed him. He had a heart after this God. I need to know him. Growing up as a child, uh, my family never did just have a lot. We had enough, but never a lot. We were blessed. And one of the things that my father tried to instill in us as children was the, 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 when it came to tithes and offering, giving, that if you give and you give faithfully and you give cheerfully to the Lord, that he will turn around and give back unto you and he will bless you. And so there were many times where my mom, who I'm a little bit too much like, would get very stressed about the finances and about the bills and about things not working out for this month or this week or the groceries are not being enough. And my dad would always look at her. And he would infamously say, God's got it. It's all going to work out. God's got it. And so now in my adulthood, I try to remember the words of what my father used to say to my mom and to us. That, hey, God's got it. It's all going to work out. And so I try to model that because I say, if the God that was faithful to my dad, if he can be as faithful to me, it's all going to work out. And so some of you, when you look back at your family and you look back at the history of where you come from, maybe you do have a praying grandmother somewhere back along the lineage. Maybe you do have a great-grandfather that started out in church, and maybe the family's kind of lost its way since then. Maybe you've stumbled out of church since then. But let me tell you this, that if, the, if, if God was with them, then he is the same God that can be with you. And that is what Josiah is saying. He's saying, if he was the God of David, then he needs to be the God of me. And so Josiah begins to seek after, and he begins to, to try his best to serve God. So now in the 12th year of his reign, he's now 20 years old, he decides there's too much idolatry in Jerusalem and in Judah. There's too much of it. And so he begins to go on a little bit of a crusade, and he travels. He leaves his kingdom, and he travels from city to city to city to city. And he's, I mean, he's, he's tearing down the, the, the false gods' temples and their, the poles that they would worship at and offer sacrifices at. He would, he would uh, find the priests that were worshiping these false gods. He'd kill them, burn their bones, and then throw their ashes on the altars, and he burned the altars. Josiah was going crazy, but he was doing his best to purge and get rid of any trace of idolatry left in the kingdom and now we get to this point 
we get to where he is 26 years old, the 18th year of his reign, and he decides, my attention now needs to go to the place of worship for God. My attention needs to go to the temple. So now if you remember, Solomon built the temple. It's been a little less than 300 years since. And kings have come and gone. And the temple has not been touched. The temple has not been uh, uh, kept up with. The temple has not been uh, tended to like it needed to since Hezekiah was king. Now, in case you don't know, don't worry. I'm going to be the history teacher this morning. It's been a little over 75 years since Hezekiah has died. So now Josiah, 75 years later, says the temple needs to be kept up with. Because what's happened in between Hezekiah and Josiah were a bunch of evil kings who did worship false gods. And what did they do? They defiled the temple. And they didn't keep up with the temple. You'll notice that Josiah, he begins to hire masons to come fix the brickwork. He hires some carpenters to fix the rafters where the roof has started to cave in. The walls have started to collapse. Josiah, he's bringing in the entire crew, and he's saying, we are going to restore the temple to its former glory. Second Chronicles chapter 34, now we're going to go to verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken into the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah, the priest, found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. And so he gave it to Shaphan. Then Shaphan took the book to the king and reported to him, Your officials are doing everything that has been committed to them. They have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the supervisors and the workers. Then Shaphan, the secretary, informed the king, Hokiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read, it in the, read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Asiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. Let's break it down, because what happens next is incredible. So Hilkiah, an aging high priest, is over there in the temple, just kind of walking around the temple, observing them trying to fix up the place. And in the debris and in the rubble of the temple, he finds something. What does he find? He finds the book, the book of the law. He finds the word among the rubble. He goes, wait a minute. He goes, wait, what's this? I've never. And he opens it and he realizes what it is. And I imagine there was a piece of Hilkiah that vaguely remembered. This is the word. This, this is the book of the law. I remember as a kid when they used to read this in the temple. I remember 
I remember hearing about Moses. I remember hearing about Abraham. I remember hearing the stories. It's been so long. Where has this been? Has it just been here, buried this entire time? And then he turns to Shaphan, and the secretary, and he says, Look, the king has to know about this as quickly as possible. Take it and go inform the king. Now, what happens next is hilarious to me, but it's also very sad. Shaphan heads off to the king, and what's the first thing he tells the king when he gets there? He says, the project's going good. He's got his report. He's saying the money's all been paid out. The masons got paid. The carpenters got paid. The painters got paid. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, Construction, everything is all going good and fine. We're on schedule. And then it goes... Oh, yeah, my king, I'm sorry. Hilkiah found a book? Shaphan doesn't realize, even realize what he's holding. He has no idea what's in his hand. He just, oh, yeah, my king, Hilkiah, the priest, he found a book, and he thought you needed to see it. It's amazing the gap between the generations that we see in the story. We go from the older Hilkiah who recognizes it as the book of the law. This is the word from God. This is what this nation needs to shape and who goes, it's just a book. It's just a book. Why do we have our teenagers and our children today who think, it's just a book. It's just another book on my shelf. It's just another book that sits in the family room. It's just another book that, that we see at church. It's just, this is just a book. Meanwhile, the grandparents and the great-grandparents and even mom and dad, they're saying, no, it's not just a book. This is, this is the Word of God. This is what got me through so much in my life. This is what carried me. This is what sustained me. This is what kept me. But the kids, they, it's just a book. But can I go ahead and say this? When it comes to generational gaps and spiritual illiteracy, we can't blame, we can't always blame, I'll put it like that, we can't always blame the younger generation. Because for them to have got that point, there had to be a generation before them that didn't teach them what they needed to know. My father can't get mad at me when I don't know what a wrench is when my father never stopped and showed me what a wrench was. We can't get mad at our children, parents, and grandparents when we never showed them what this was. When we never taught them, we never read from it, we never stopped, and we stopped at family time and dinner time and right before bedtime, and we opened this thing up and said, before we go to bed, before we end the day, let's read from the Word. You're going to know what the Word is. You're going to know what it says, and it's going to be an asset to your life. But Shaphan doesn't realize it. He says he found a book. And the king's like, well, read it. And so Shaphan begins to read it. And it says, Josiah tore his robes. He tore his robes from what he heard. But can I tell you what I love about the story so far? I love it. It's that when they're in the temple, and the temple has been desolate, it has been abandoned, it has been left to time and where and everything else. Like we said, evil kings have come in and defiled the temple with their false worship. 
letting who knows what in there. All kinds of people, all kinds of things have come in and defiled the temple. The roof has started to cave in. The walls have started to fall over. The ground has cracked up from the bottom. The temple is in complete disarray. But this is what I love. The book was never destroyed. The book was never destroyed. The book was never touched. Can I tell somebody this morning, this is what I want you to understand, is that in the chaos and the destruction of your life, the word remains. When things are falling apart, the roof is caving in, the word remains. When you look at your marriage, it's crumbling. You don't know if you'll make it to next year, next week, next month. The word still remains. When you go and, and, and you go to the doctor, they give the bad report. Suddenly life starts caving in. They say, you've only got this long to live. We only think you'll make it this long. Guess what? The word still remains. That no matter the destruction, no matter what you've let in, no matter what you have done, the word still remains. Let me remind somebody this morning, your sin has not nullified the word. Your mistakes have not invalidated the word. Nothing can destroy, take away, or stop the word. And that's what I love about this story, is that no matter what had happened, no matter what had gone wrong, that, that amidst the pile of rubble and amidst the destruction, the word was still there. And that's what I want you to know this morning, is that your life, no matter what's going on, no matter what's happened, the word still remains. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew. Matthew 24 and 35, this is what he said, you know it. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I don't care if this is your first Sunday back in 15 years, the word still remains for you. I don't care if you had to drag your children kicking and screaming, and I'm not talking about, the, I'm talking about your grown children, and you're trying to get them back in church because they're so lost. I want you to know the Word still remains for them. I want you to know that despite what is going on in your life, no matter what's going on, Jesus said it. He said the Word will remain. I don't care what else has gone wrong. I don't care what else has happened, but the Word remains. I love what David said. Let's look at what David said about it. Psalm 119, and we'll look at verse 89 through 93. He says, Your eternal word, O Lord, stands firm in heaven. Your faithfulness extends to every generation, as enduring as the earth you created. Your regulations remain true to this day, for everything serves your plans. If your instructions had not sustained me with joy, I would have died in my misery. I will never forget your commandments, for they give me life. The word, the infallible, the untouchable word of life, it still remains. So the book is read to Josiah. What does Josiah do? He tears his kingly clothes off. He becomes distraught. In reading the story, I have to wonder why. Why he's so upset. Because at the beginning of the chapter, we see what Josiah is doing. And he's doing good. In fact, the first verse, the first couple of verses of the chapter say that he's doing what's right in the eyes of God, not turning to the right or to the left. He's modeling after King David. 
He's repairing the temple. He's tearing down all the idol worship. But still when it gets red, he tears off his kingly robes and he begins to weep. Could it be that your good intentions are not enough? Josiah in all of his power is trying to right the wrongs of the nation. He's trying to right the wrongs that have come before him and under his reign. He says, you know what? I've heard that David served a God that blessed the nation. I'm going to discover this God and serve him as well. You know what? These idols of worship that don't acknowledge God, I'm going to tear them down. The temple where we worship God, I'm going to repair it. But still, he tears his kingly robes. Could it be that your good intentions are not enough? You see, this morning you may have, you may have good intentions. You may think you've done all the right things. You went into your house and you found every false idol. You found every sinful thing. You found anything that could uh, 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 go against what God says. You put you put all kinds of uh, um, uh, website uh, protection on your smartphones, on your laptops. You got rid of every rated R movie. You got, you put passwords on the television access so your kids can't get into anything. You threw out everything. You threw out your tobacco. You threw out your beer. You got rid of it all. And then what's even better than that is you said, I'm going to start going to church now too. I'm going to start attending church. What's better than that is you say, I remember my great-grandfather who was a pastor. And I'm going to try and be like him. And you're doing all these things just like Josiah was doing. And yet you're still sitting there and you're thinking, what am I missing? Why is this not enough? Why does it still feel like something is not right? Why does it still like still feel like something is crumbling, something is falling apart, something is not coming together like it should? Could it be that just because you have the intentions to fix your life does not mean you can fix your life? Second Chronicles chapter 34. We'll skip down further to verse 29. It says, then the king, he called together all the elders of Judah in Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the Levites, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by his pillar, and he renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord. The covenant was to follow the Lord, keep his commands, his statutes, and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, and to obey the words of the covenant written in this book. Then he had everyone in Jerusalem and Benjamin pledge themselves to it. The people of Jerusalem did this in accordance with the covenant of God, the God of their ancestors." 
Josiah removed all the detestable idols from all the territory belonging to the Israelites, and he had all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. And as long as he lived, they did not fail to follow the Lord their God, the God of their ancestors. There's hope this morning. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. But the hope is not in your good intentions. The hope is not in modeling your life after somebody else's. The hope is not in attending church regularly, irregularly, somewhere in the middle. The hope is not in you combing through your life and getting rid of what doesn't belong. All good things. All things that I would applaud and say, yes, what you're doing is good. You should do that. You should go through your house and get rid of anything that could, that could be against the Lord. You should attend church regularly. You should look at people in your life that have paved a way before you and say, I want to be like them. I want to be as close to God as possible. You should. But there's also something else that you've got to do. You've got to have covenant with Him. You've got to have relationship. You've got to be at a place in your life where you restore what has been lost. You renew what has been forgotten. So if you want hope this morning, I've got it. I have the chance to offer it to you. I have the chance to offer you that opportunity to find the hope of your life. When life is crumbling all around you and you're, you're looking around, you're going, we can't make it, we can't do this, we can't get through it. Hope still exists. I'll say it like this. We love when we come to church to dress up our best. I'll go ahead and say I like to do it. You know, I pay, I pay good money for this jacket on my back. I like to wear it when I can. Otherwise, it's just hanging up in my closet. I mean, what am I going to do? That's just money hanging up. So I got I to gotta get my money's worth, you know? We love to come to church dressed up in our best. For some of you, kind of your best. I see you. I'm not calling you out. I'm just saying, you know, I see you in your flip-flops and your shorts. It's okay. I'm not going to, hey, that's cool. That's your style. We love to come to church. We love to dress up. And we love to smile, hug necks, shake hands. And you're going to get asked about 30 times when you walk in the building, hey, how are you? About 30 times. I want you to count from the time you come in next Sunday to the time you leave. How many times does somebody say, how are you? Or how you been? How are things? And what do we all say? Good. They're great. They're awesome. They're good. Most of us just kind of do it like while we're walking half past them. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Good. <laughs> because we know that if we look up, we know that if we let our guard down for one second, they might see that things aren't so good. When did church become a museum where we show off the best? and the brightest. Instead of a place for the broken to say, I'm not okay. 
I'm not doing good. I'm not fine. My marriage is not good. Now, I'm not saying you got to air out your laundry to everybody, because I wouldn't, because I don't trust everybody in this room. No offense. But there are some people I'd lend my credit card to. There are some people I don't know you like that. But we come into church, we put on our smile, we put on our happy face, we say we're fine, we're good, when really we're not. We're not. Things aren't going good in my life right now. Things aren't going the way I wanted. I am feeling burnout. out. I am feeling like things are going to fail, like the marriage isn't going to work. Come on, couples, where are you at? I know you were fighting in the car this morning. You got in the car this morning, and you snapped at your husband. You snapped at your wife because they couldn't move their feet faster to get in the car. We're going to be late. Hurry up. If you tell me to hurry up one more time, I'm going to promise you, I'm going to hit you in the back of the head with this bottle. Just watch. Say it again. Tell me to hurry up one more time. Wives, your husband was ready, but he didn't have his shoes on this morning. Because this is going to take you 45 minutes. And when you finally came out of the bedroom, I'm ready, let's go. He goes, well, let me get my shoes on. Well, you just went ballistic. You don't have your shoes on yet. It's been 45 minutes. Well, I didn't want to wear my shoes for 45 minutes. But you had an argument. You yelled at your kids on the way over here. I don't want that for breakfast. Shut up. Eat it. I got an amen from somebody who doesn't have kids. <laughs> hey, some of you got in your car this morning. There was no screaming. There was no fighting. But you just sat there at the steering wheel for a little bit too long. So you thought, just another day. Just got to get through it. I just got to get to church, smile, shake a few hands, and just get through it. And then... Be back home. Just, just, just get through it. Some of you, it wasn't that. It wasn't the screaming. It wasn't the fighting. Some of you, it was a prayer. God, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know what I'm going to do. I need you to show me, to tell me, to help me. I need you to do something today. Otherwise, I just don't know. Are you really there? Are you really listening? Question that I've asked before, do you even care? These are all valid questions. And I see you this morning. I do, I see you. I see, I see the wife in the room who struggles because she's trying to love her husband. When her husband won't love her. I see you. I see the husband who's, or the father who's fighting through tears because your children won't even speak to you now. Because of what you did years ago. And now that you're trying to rectify it, they still won't talk to you. And you're looking for something. I see the couple who's got their heads barely above water. They're saying, I don't know if we can get groceries. I don't know if we can pay the car. I don't know if we can pay for the house. I don't know if we can, 
I don't know how we're going to make it. I see you. I know you're smiling, and when I ask you, hey, how are you? You'll say, I'm good, but I see you. Because I've been there too. And I've walked that path too. And in those moments, and in those times, one thing I've needed is hope. I've done a little bit of painting in my life. Not a lot, but a little. You walk into a room, sheetrock is done, sanded, ready for paint. You paint it, it looks like a brand new room. It looks great. What if you walk into a room, roof is caving in, sheetrock isn't done, maybe some holes in the walls actually, and you go, let's paint it anyways. Well, what do you have? You have a mess. It's a pretty mess. At least it's not an ugly mess. That's what some of you are this morning. You're a pretty mess. At least you look good, but you're still a mess. You got on your nice shirt, you got on your shoes, your makeup, you got you're smiling, you look good, you're still a mess. I want to point to you what Isaiah wrote about the 61st chapter, verse 3. You, you've heard it. It says, To all who mourn in Israel, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. I love what that first part says. He will give you a crown of beauty for your ashes. But some of you are trying to take your ashes and turn them into beauty. It's a trade-off. You can't keep your ashes and still have the beauty. He says, you give me the ashes, I give you the beauty. You give me the brokenness. You give me what's falling apart. You give me what's not working. You give me the sorrow. You give me the mourning. You give me the despair. You give that to me. And I'll give you the crown of beauty. I'll give you the joy. I'll give you the dancing. But you got to give it to me. It's a trade-off. If I brought a pile of ashes up here on stage, I didn't because I didn't want to mess up the carpet. But if I brought a pile of ashes up here on stage and I tried to make a crown for, out of them and to put it on my head, it wouldn't work. But that's what I see when I see some of people come into church I just see ashes on their head, and I'm like, you're trying to make it work. You're trying to say, see, I've got beauty, I've got joy, I've got... No, you don't. Not yet. This morning, I want to go ahead and wind this down. If I can have some music or musicians come. See, I told you I wouldn't go too terribly long. This morning, I just want to offer you a very simple thing. I want to offer you the chance to find the hope that you need in your life. I want to offer you the chance to find that missing piece, to find that thing that you need. John chapter 1, verse 1, we all know it. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, 
says he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not, will not, cannot overcome the light. If you will, stand with me this morning. Very simply, this is how I want to place the altar call. If you feel like you have no hope, if you feel like you have no place to turn, you feel like you have nowhere to go, you feel like your life is collapsing, falling into pieces, like you were on the edge, this is for you. This is for you. Because the last thing that I want to see from anybody is you spend your life working and trying and trying and trying in your own power to fix what you can't fix. Josiah had a great mindset. I'll repair the temple. I'll follow after David's footsteps. But that wasn't going to turn a nation around. It was only when he found the Word did he go, now I have what I need. <clears throat> yes, you can keep bringing your family to church. I want you to. I think it's great that you are. But that in of itself will not turn your family around. I'm sorry, it won't. There's too many people sitting in church now who's a mess and their lives aren't turned around. Filling an empty chair will not do it. Trying to mimic great-grandpappy will not do it. But what would happen if you met in these altars and you said, let's renew the covenant. Let's restore what's been lost. Let's get back to the basics, to the beginning. I was talking to my wife the other night. I said, what do you think about renewing your vows? I mean, we've only been married four years, so I'm not saying, you know, things aren't that bad with me and Hope. <laughs> I said, what's your thought process on that? How do you view people who want to renew their vows? So she was sharing that with me. She was just saying, it's just a way for people to once again say to that person, I love you, I choose you, and I'm going to stay with you. She said, but also, your vows may change. Because you have people have changed. Now you're probably a mom and he's probably a dad. You've grown up and you've been through so much and now the vows are different than when you were just young and in love and all of that. She said, I think, I think it's a good thing. When's the last time you've considered renewing your vow with the Lord? You've been through a lot. You've seen a lot. When's the last time you said, you know what? I just need to talk to the Lord again and just renew what I started. 
and say, God, I still love you. I still choose you. I know I walked away for a little bit, but I'm coming back. I'm coming back to this moment, to this place where you're going to be Lord of my life. You're going to be what my family pursues. You're going to be the one that leads us out of this. Not me. If that's you this morning, and you need to come and just have a moment with God where you, you are just renewed. There, there's an old, I'll put it to you like this, I'll put it to you in the, the Pentecostal vernacular, okay? If you just need a fresh feeling of the God this morning, this is for you. Because guess what? These are infamous words. <laughs> and it's funny because they're from my brother. You got to understand, my brother's just his own person. And I'm not saying this is true. I'm saying this is what he said. He said, life sucks, then you die. There's a lot of good in life. Don't get me wrong. Family. Everything, just people who love you, just being in moments. But life does have a lot of bad. And sometimes it wears on us. And it grinds us down. I made a joke last night. We were at a crawfish boil. Man, that's some good crawfish too. I say this in love. Everybody hear me. I'm saying it in what? Love. I said the best part about ministry is being with people. And I said, the worst part about ministry is being with people. Sometimes the best parts of life can also be the worst parts of life. One of the best parts of my life, marrying that woman over there. Man, I hit, hit it out of the park. We walk down the street, people look at me and go, how in the world did he get her? And I'm like, I know, right? That's, that's all God right there. If there's ever a sign of God's goodness, it's when that lady's on my arm. But then some of the worst parts. <laughs> it's been nights where she said something or I've said something. And now we're just like two pit bulls going at each other. And then afterwards, you both just feel like the absolute dumps. And it's like, why is this happening? Why Is this even going to work out? It is. It is. But like I said, life can just wear you down. And sometimes you just have to get yourself renewed, refreshed, restored. You've got to get back to a place where God can just come in and go, look, I'm going to come back in here. I'm going to clean you off. I'm going to freshen you up, and we're going to start this thing over. We're going to go back out there. If that's you this morning, I want you to come. If you just need God just to give you a fresh pouring out of His Spirit, that's the best way I can put it. 
I want you to come this morning. I want to pray with you. Because I believe that this morning you can walk away from here having hope, having peace, having joy. You can walk away from this this morning feeling like you have been renewed. That's you. I want you to come this morning. Father, I thank you. And I offer you the praise. I offer you the glory. God, I ask you this morning that everybody in this room, under the sound of my voice, I pray where they're standing that you would begin I pray that your spirit would just wash over each of them. The stress, the anxiety, the fear, all the negative emotions, all the negative things that have been piling up against them, Father. I pray your spirit would wash over them and that a wave of your spirit would just begin to take off the weights from their shoulders. God, I pray that your spirit would begin to do what only you can do and renew and restore what has been lost, what has been taken. Father, I just thank you and I offer you the praise and the glory for you deserve it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Church, I want you to go this week and in the infamous words of Pastor Lot, I want you to give the devil fits. <laughs>